Hi, this is Ambria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 20th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Would You Take Financial Advice from AI? by Paulette Parach. Paul Weiner, an artist, has been experimenting with artificial intelligence for the past year, generating AI-created visual disinformation and seeing whether he can get the images to spread. But recently, he turned to ChatGPT, a chatbot that has the ability to respond to complex questions for a much different reason. With his 30th birthday looming, he decided to ask it for advice about retirement planning. Maybe ChatGPT will have some answers that I might otherwise get from someone who I'd have to pay a lot of money to, he said. Generative AI like ChatGPT has knowledge workers gripping the rails, bracing for how it might affect their jobs, and consumers leaning in to see what costly services could be soon replaced with the prompt. As the investment industry turns to artificial intelligence as a financial planning and advice tool, the values of accuracy, humanity, security, and accessibility are jolting for prominence. In the future, who or what will we be asking to advise us on some of life's most important decisions? ChatGPT recommended that Mr. Weiner open a Roth individual retirement account and certificates of deposit, as well as automate his savings and create a budget. He hasn't yet opened any of the accounts or, as the chatbot also suggested, worked with a financial advisor. It's a lot of information that gets thrown at you pretty quickly, Mr. Weiner said. He found the short explanations insufficient for what a CD does or the differences between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. He concluded that speaking to a financial advisor would probably be more helpful. But that kind of circles back to the whole reason I'm doing this on ChatGBT to start with. It's free, he said. Delianne Barros, a money coach, said she felt that most of the hundreds of thousands of people who follow her on social media had no idea what ChatGPT is. Am I the only one geeking out on this thing? She asked. When she asked her followers if they've used it, she said, they're like, what are you talking about? She's teaching them the basics. There's a free version of the service, and it works as more than just a Google alternative. On Instagram, she asked if any investing newbies had asked ChatGPT to teach them to invest. Some had tried, but reported that they kept getting stuck in a loop of repetitive answers. Ms. Barrows found that she was able to get valuable information about allocations, tax efficiencies, and retirement withdrawal rates, but she posits that that was because she had knowledge of the investment terms she needed to use. You have to know how to frame the question, she said. A lot of people don't understand that you can get an answer to something, and then it can build on that answer. You can ask follow-up questions, and then it's like a chain. Ms. Barrows has also used ChatGPT to double-check her calculations regarding her retirement plan. Despite its handiness, she is not worried that chatbots will replace her. With something like investing, I'm not concerned as a personal finance educator because I can see that it's not like, oh, we don't need you anymore, we have ChatGPT, she said. If anything, this is going to be a tool that's going to enhance my coaching experience with people, but it's definitely not going to be replacing us because people still need a lot of guidance. Even if you don't think you're familiar with it, chances are you've already been using generative AI. Inuit started to integrate AI into software products, which include Mint and TurboTax, more than a decade ago, said Ashok Srivastava, the company's senior vice president and chief data officer. Today, he said Inuit's platform performs 58 billion machine learning predictions per day. Another Inuit product, QuickBooks, predicts cash flow for small businesses, and the company has found that when it gives users advice based on artificial intelligence, 95% of small business owners take that advice. They're still focusing on a strategy that combines human interactions with AI-powered ones. Customers, for example, can meet with a live expert, and then an AI will create a categorized and tagged summary of the conversation for later review. As of now, the technology is promising, but it's not 100% accurate. These systems tell plausible stories, and they give you plausible ideas, but not necessarily correct ones, Mr. Srivastava said. What we're focusing on is actually providing the correct experience to the person so that it's grounded in reality and data that is appropriately personalized to them, so then they can make the best financial decisions as they move forward. Mr. Srivastava said he did not envision a future where humans were taken out of the financial planning equation. I've grown up in the field. I've seen it evolve, and it's an amazing technology, he said. I think that the human connection is still important. 
I envision that we will want to help CPAs, bookkeepers, financial planners, financial advisors, everyone in this ecosystem grow and prosper along with use of artificial intelligence. Josh Pickford, the founder and chief executive of Maybe, had been building a personal finance management platform that could help people make financial decisions when ChatGBT debuted. A few months ago, Maybe was rebuilt from the ground up, this time with GPT, the technology behind ChatGBT, as a foundation of the platform. The process always begins, he said, with the question people want to answer. The way that we were initially tackling this is giving you access to a financial advisor who can answer those questions for you directly, Mr. Pickford said. As we started testing GPT's ability around that, we realized, well, okay, actually GPT can do this really well. Things became even more interesting when people added their financial data and information, such as age, location, and goals. The system could then take into account everything from dependents to joint filing to local tax codes, details a financial advisor would be able to use and deliver that directly to the customer. That, of course, brings up the subject of privacy. Through Maybe's system, the banking information is secured and does not feed back to OpenAI, the company that created ChatGPT. Hallucinations, the tendency for ChatGPT to spot off incorrect information, have also become a worry. Mr. Pickford and his team identified the issue during early testing. There was a point there where it was actually making up entire transactions and building this backstory of like, you bought this item from Home Depot to help cool off your living room, he said. That's a legitimate problem. As the technology has improved, Mr. Pickford has seen a drastic decrease in these hallucinations in just weeks. The way they're designing the software includes a toggle to switch between a chatbot and humans for advice. The belief, the hypothesis, what we're sort of banking on is that we're able to actually offer that sort of hyper-personalized input and advice without you having to, you know, form a relationship with a certified financial advisor where you're paying them an assets under management fee or even paying them, you know, a couple hundred bucks an hour, he said. You're able to get very specific advice regardless of what your financial situation is. But Mr. Pickford believes it's too early to do away with life professionals. I think we'll still have some transition period where we'll want humans involved for a while, he said. The goal is to not completely do away with a financial advisor. Glenn Hopper, author of Deep Finance, Corporate Finance in the Information Age, relates this GPT era to the screech of dial-up internet. The prevalence of AI, he said, is going to come quicker than the adoption of the internet and broadband internet and web browsers. I've stopped making predictions because every time I make a prediction, I'll say 6 to 12 months, and then I'll read an article the next day that this item has already appeared, Mr. Hopper said. He warned that tools like ChatGPT would make scamming and phishing more sophisticated, so users should be more cautious of anyone asking for their banking information. The very first thing that I tell everyone is, if you've been ignoring artificial intelligence up until now, stop, he said. He doesn't think people need to become experts, but they should have a basic understanding of how the technology works, he said. If we're going to hand over our decisions to them, and we don't have any idea how they're working, I mean, you might as well shake one of those magic eight balls and get your answer from that, he said. Rice gets reimagined from the Mississippi to the Mekong by Somni Sengupta reporting from Arkansas and Bangladesh and Tran Le Thuy from Vietnam. Rice is in trouble as the earth heats up, threatening the food and livelihood of billions of people. Sometimes there's not enough rain when seedlings need water, or too much when the plants need to keep their heads above water. As the sea intrudes, salt ruins the crop. As nights warm, yields go down. These hazards are forcing the world to find new ways to grow one of its most important crops. Rice farmers are shifting their planting calendars. Plant breeders are working on seeds to withstand high temperatures or salty soils. Hardy heirloom varieties are being resurrected. And where water is running low, as it is in so many parts of the world, farmers are letting their fields dry out on purpose, a strategy that also reduces methane, a potent greenhouse gas that rises from paddy fields. The climate crisis is particularly distressing for small farmers with little land, which is the case for hundreds of millions of farmers in Asia. They have to adapt, otherwise they can't live, said Pham Tan Dao, the irrigation chief for Sak Trang, a coastal province in Vietnam, one of the biggest rice-producing countries in the world. In China, a study found that extreme rainfall had reduced rice yields over the past 20 years. 
India limited rice exports out of concern for having enough to feed its own people. In Pakistan, heat and floods destroyed harvests, while in California, a long drought led many farmers to fallow their fields. Worldwide, rice production is projected to shrink this year, largely because of extreme weather. Today, Vietnam is preparing to take nearly 250,000 acres of land in the Mekong Delta, its rice bowl, out of production. Climate change is partly to blame, but also dams upstream on the Mekong River that choke the flow of the fresh water. Some years, when the rains are paltry, rice farmers don't even plant a third rice crop, as they had before, or they just switch to shrimp, which is costly and can degrade the land further. The challenges are now different from those 50 years ago. Then, the world needed to produce much more rice to stave off famine. High-yielding hybrid seeds grown with chemical fertilizers helped. In the Mekong Delta, farmers went on to produce as many as three harvests a year, feeding millions at home and abroad. Today, that very system of intensive production has created new problems worldwide. It has depleted aquifers, driven up fertilizer use, reduced the diversity of rice breeds that are planted, and polluted the air with the smoke of burning rice stubble. On top of that, there's climate change. It has upended the rhythm of sunshine and rain that the rice depends on. Perhaps most worrying, because rice is eaten every day by some of the world's poorest, elevated carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere deplete nutrients from each grain. Rice faces another climate problem. It accounts for an estimated 8% of global methane emissions. That's a fraction of the emissions from coal, oil, and gas, which together account for 35% of methane emissions. But fossil fuels can be replaced by other energy sources. Rice, not so much. Rice is the staple grain for an estimated 3 billion people. It's in biryani, in pho, jollof, and jambalaya, a source of tradition and sustenance. We are in a fundamentally different moment, said Louis H. Ziska, a professor of environmental health sciences at Columbia University. It's a question of producing more with less. How do you do that in a way that's sustainable? How do you do that in a climate that's changing? In 1975, facing famine after war, Vietnam resolved to grow more rice. It succeeded spectacularly, eventually becoming the world's third largest rice exporter after India and Thailand. The green patchwork of the Mekong Delta became its most prized rice region. At the same time, though, the Mekong River was reshaped by human hands. Starting in southeastern China, the river meanders through Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, and Cambodia, interrupted by many dams. Today, by the time it reaches Vietnam, there is little fresh water left to flush out seawater seeping inland. Rising sea levels bring in more seawater. Irrigation canals turn salty. The problem is only going to get worse as temperatures rise. We now accept that fast-rising salty water is normal, said Mr. Pham, the irrigation chief. We have to prepare to deal with it. Where salt water used to intrude 30 kilometers or so, about 19 miles, during the dry season, he said, it can now reach 70 kilometers inland. Climate change brings other risks. You can no longer count on the monsoon season to start in May as before. And so in dry years, farmers now rush to sow rice 10 to 30 days earlier than usual, researchers have found. In coastal areas, many rotate between rice and shrimp, which like a bit of salt water. But this requires reining in greed, said Dang Tan Sang, 60, a lifelong rice farmer in Sak Trang. Shrimp brings in high profits, but also high risks. Disease sets in easily. The land becomes barren. He has seen it happen to other farmers. So on his seven acres, Mr. Dang plants rice when there's fresh water in the canals and shrimp when the seawater seeps in. Rice cleans the water. Shrimp nourishes the soil. It's not a lot of money like growing only shrimp, he said, but it's safer. Elsewhere, farmers will have to shift their calendars for rice and other staple grains, researchers concluded in a recent paper. Scientists are already trying to help them. The Cabinet of Wonders in Argelia Lawrence's laboratory is filled with seeds of rice, 310 different kinds of rice. Many are ancient, rarely grown now, but they hold genetic superpowers that Dr. Lawrence, a plant biochemist at Arkansas State University, is trying to find, particularly those that enable rice plants to survive hot nights, one of the most acute hazards of climate change. She has found two such genes so far. They can be used to breed new hybrid varieties. 
I am convinced, she said, that decades from now, farmers are going to need very different kinds of seeds. Dr. Lawrence is among an army of rice breeders developing new varieties for a hotter planet. Multinational seed companies are heavily invested. Rice Tech, from which most rice growers in the southern eastern United States buy seeds, backs Dr. Lawrence's research. Critics say hybrid seeds and the chemical fertilizers they need make farmers heavily dependent on the company's products, and because they promise high yields, effectively wipe out heirloom varieties that can be more resilient to climate hazards. The new frontier of rice research involves CRISPR, a gene-editing technology that U.S. scientists are using to create a seed that produces virtually no methane. Genetically modified rice remains controversial, and only a handful of countries allow its cultivation. In Bangladesh, researchers have produced new varieties for the climate pressures that farmers are dealing with already. Some can grow when they're submerged in floodwaters for days. Others can grow in soils that have turned salty. In the future, researchers say the country will need new rice varieties that can grow with less fertilizer, which is now heavily subsidized by the state, or that must tolerate even higher salinity levels. No matter what happens with the climate, said Kandakar Iftekaro Duala, chief scientist officer at the Bangladesh Rice Research Institute, Bangladesh will need to produce more. Rice is eaten at every meal. Rice security is synonymous with food security, he said. Rice is central to the story of the United States. It enriched the coastal states of the American South, all with the labor of enslaved Africans who bought with them generations of rice-growing knowledge. Today, the country's dominant rice-growing area is spread across the hard clay soil near where the Mississippi River meets one of its tributaries, the Arkansas River. It looks nothing like the Mekong Delta. The fields here are laser-level flat as pancakes, work is done by machine, and the farms are vast, sometimes more than 20,000 acres. What they share are the hazards of climate change. Nights are hotter, rains are erratic, and there's the problem created by the very success of so much intensive rice farming. Groundwater is running dangerously low. Enter Benjamin Runkel, an engineering professor from the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Instead of keeping rice fields flooded at all times, as growers have always done, Dr. Runkel suggested that Arkansas farmers let the fields dry out a bit and then let in the water again, then repeat. Oh, and would they let them measure the methane coming off their fields? Mark Isbell, a second-generation rice farmer, signed up. On the edge of Mr. Isbell's field, Dr. Runkel erected a tall white contraption that an egret might mistake for a cousin. The device measured the gases produced by bacteria stewing in the flooded fields. It's like taking a breathalyzer test of the land, Dr. Runkel said. His experiment carried out over seven years concluded that by not flooding the fields continuously, farmers can reduce rice methane emissions by more than 60%. Other farmers have taken to planting rice in rows like corn and leaving furrows in between for the water to flow. That, too, reduces water use and, according to research in China, where it's been common for some time, cuts methane emissions. The most important finding from Mr. Isbell's vantage point, it reduces his energy bills to pump water. There are upsides to it beyond the climate benefits, he said. By cutting his methane emissions, Mr. Isbell was able to pick up some cash by selling carbon credits, which is when polluting businesses pay someone else to make emission cuts. When neighbors asked him how that went, he told them he could buy them a drink and explain, but it will have to only be one drink, he said. He made very little money from it. However, there will be more upside soon. For farmers who can demonstrate emissions reductions, the Biden administration is offering federal funds for what it calls climate-smart projects. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack came to Mr. Isbell's farm last fall to promote the program. Mr. Isbell reckons the incentives will persuade other rice growers to adopt alternate wetting and drying. We kind of look over the hill and see what's coming for the future and learn now, said his father, Chris Isbell. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. China denounces G7 summit, warning Democratic leaders against putting pressure on Beijing by Chris Buckley. China issued a sharp denunciation of the Group of Seven Summit on Saturday, warning leaders of democratic powers gathered in Hiroshima, Japan, against pressing Beijing about Taiwan, economic coercion, and other contentious topics. 
The group of seven talks in lofty tones about moving toward a peaceful, stable, prosperous world. But what it is doing is obstructing international peace, harming regional stability, and oppressing the development of other countries, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs said in a statement on Saturday. The group of seven has ignored China's grave concerns and insisted on manipulating topics related to China, vilifying and attacking China, and crudely meddling in China's domestic affairs. The ministry issued its statement at about the same time on Saturday that President Biden and other G7 leaders in Hiroshima issued a communique calling for constructive and stable relations with China, but also for peace and stability in the Strait between China and Taiwan, the island democracy that Beijing has said must accept unification. The communique also urged China to use its influence over Russia to get Moscow to withdraw its troops from Ukraine. But the Chinese foreign ministry said that even the G7 leaders' relatively mild comments about Taiwan were unacceptable interference. Taiwan is China's Taiwan. Resolving the Taiwan issue is a matter for the Chinese people themselves, the Chinese foreign ministry said. The G7 statement, it added, amounted to support for Taiwanese independence, and the outcome will only create serious shocks for peace and stability in a Taiwan Strait. The Chinese statement did not comment directly on the G7 leader's call for Beijing to press Russia to abandon its invasion of Ukraine. Zelensky meets with India's leader, whose straddling position on the war has frustrated the West, by Cassandra Vinograd. President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine sat down with Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India in Japan on Saturday. His first meeting since Russia's invasion with a leader whose straddling position on the war has frustrated both Kiev and Mr. Modi's Western supporters. Despite pressure from Washington, India has so far declined to condemn Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Instead, it has chosen to walk a middle path that its officials say is centered on its own interests and growing influence. Mr. Modi has also stressed the importance of resolving the war through dialogue and diplomacy, and expressing his willingness to contribute to peace efforts. On Saturday, Mr. Zelensky met Mr. Modi on the sidelines of the Group of Seven summit in Hiroshima, in place of the warm hug he shared with leaders like Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of Britain. Mr. Zelensky extended the Indian leader a handshake before they were seated for what he later described as a serious talk. In a brief separate statement, Mr. Zelensky said he had discussed Ukraine's humanitarian needs and invited Mr. Modi to join Ukraine's peace initiative. The initiative lays out as a precondition for any negotiations to end the war that Russia would draw from all of Ukraine's territory. I thank India for supporting our country's territorial integrity and sovereignty, in particular at the platforms of international organizations, and for providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Mr. Zelensky wrote on Twitter. His language echoes India's own statements about the war, which it refrains from calling a war, and about the disputed territory of Kashmir. Mr. Modi said he had conveyed our clear support for dialogue and diplomacy to find a way forward to the Ukrainian leader. We will continue extending humanitarian assistance to the people of Ukraine, he wrote on Twitter. India has long tried to balance its ties to Russia and the West. During the Cold War, it was a reluctant partner to the Soviet Union. While it has cultivated closer relations to the United States, Moscow remains a trusted partner, a key energy supplier, and the source of much of the Indian military's weaponry. The Ukraine crisis and the escalating tensions between Russia and the West have tested India's tightrope act. It has increased purchases of Russian oil, which has angered Ukraine and the United States, and it has refused to support resolutions at the United Nations that have condemned Russia's aggression. Can the writer's strike fix Hollywood? By Ross Douthat. Here's my attempt to summarize the context of the Hollywood writer's strike in three sentences. First, the entertainment business, floated on in easy money and encouraged by the unusual conditions of the COVID era, committed itself to an unstable expansion, the great streaming experiment in which every major brand would have a Netflix of its own. Then, as the instability of this growth became apparent, the studios and streamers began wringing more and more out of their writers at longer and less predictable hours and with fewer long-term rewards. Even as the corporate suits looked hopefully to AI to render certain writerly duties obsolete, 
This context makes the writer's demands appear reasonable and just, but it also means that the striking scribes could lose while winning, bringing concessions around pay and working hours as a prelude to a larger contraction, a collapse in the number of scripted shows that Hollywood puts out. The question for those of us who watch and write about TV shows and movies rather than creating them is what this conflict means for the art that justifies all of this commercial wrangling. One narrative sees an opportunity in the strike to reconsider the larger way that Hollywood has evolved, especially the Marvel era fixation on franchises, reboots, and pre-sold storytelling, which is variously attributed to a profit-mad venture capital mindset taking hold in Hollywood or the effects of consolidation in the film business. Against this backdrop, the Monopoly critic Matt Stoller argues that the goal of the strikers should be finding allies in the cause of big structural change, breaking up the vertically integrated corporate behemoths, separating production and distribution once again, and thereby making the alchemy of the mid-budget movie more competitive with the superhero sweatshop. A somewhat more pessimistic analysis offered by writers like Sonny Bunch and Jessa Crispin emphasizes that the superhero sweatshop corporate strategy evolved because it's giving audiences what they want. The people are buying tickets for comic book movies and Super Mario, Bunch points out, not Air or The Last Duel. The fan culture that sustains these projects, Crispin argues, often seems to prefer its writers to be replaceable cogs in a content machine. And so if the strike is an opportunity for reconsiderations, it's probably not a lever that can change the system as a whole. Personally, I would like to see the strike lever a different Hollywood system into being, but I would settle for a return to the entertainment landscape that existed around 10 years ago before the streaming took off. When the downsides of the special effects franchise era in cinema were partly compensated for by the emergence of richer, deeper, more ambitious television. My viewers' impression of what's happened since then is that the streaming expansion first delivered a welcome surfeit of small-screen ambition, but then increasingly felt as if it was spreading creative talent too thin, working it too hard or both. Sometimes the shows of the peak TV era start out brilliantly, but then struggle to sustain their dynamism, even in the second season. HBO's Westworld, for instance, or lately Showtime's Yellow Jackets. Sometimes they play like the thin imitations of the previous decade's anti-hero dramas, Netflix's Ozark say, or they take on the character of the theatrical experience, but somewhat worse, with two big-to-fail franchises that nobody really enjoys, Obi-Wan Kenobi say or Rings of Power, or they ask too much of a talented showrunner who's paid more and more to deliver a spread of content rather than concentrating on a single story. The evolution of Taylor Sheridan's Yellowstone and its disappointing spin-offs fill this bill. In theory, the strike and aftermath scenario I sketched above, where the writers win better working conditions and higher pay, but then overall numbers of shows contracts as streaming platforms fold or merge, could bring some kind of resolution to this spread too thin problem. It could yield a world where writers' room talent is better compensated and more concentrated, where showrunners don't have as many empire-building opportunities, but the shows they make are better for it. Obviously, this isn't the outcome the union is hoping for, because it would mean fewer writing jobs. But for the viewer, a world with somewhat fewer shows might also be a world with better ones. The darker scenario, though, is that any streaming contraction could combine with any intensified television imitation of the big screen franchise model. In that case, we could get more and more blockbuster television as a safe-seeming but uncreative bet while losing some of the peak TV serendipitous experiments, like the happy accident of the White Lotus, whose resort drama came into being as a way to film in isolation during COVID, or the brilliance of Andor, a Star Wars show without a brand name or a baby Yoda. If you care about originality, that's the real lose-while-winning scenario for this strike. Writers end up with a fair share of an industry pivoting further from creativity. There is no ocean in sight, but many Hawaiians make Las Vegas their home. By Eliza Fawcett when Pauline Kaoinani Souza was a child in Hawaii, she spent early mornings watering her grandfather's watermelons and papaya trees. Her family lived frugally, eating homemade bread and heating water over a fire for bathing. But the no-frills life came with the ultimate perk. 
living near the beach and drifting off to sleep at night to the sound of waves gently crashing on the shore. Now at 80, Miss Souza lives in Las Vegas, a desert city of neon reinvention far from the ocean and her ancestral home. It is not paradise. It is full of native Hawaiians like her who have flocked there in recent years for the endless entertainment, reasonable cost of living, and something few people can find in Hawaii, a house they can afford. I own it outright, she said proudly of her two-bedroom ranch-style home in Las Vegas. In Hawaii, there aren't many people who can say that. Increasingly, Las Vegas is drawing Hawaiians who came to visit and decided to stay, convinced that an affordable, faux version of the islands is better than an endless struggle to make ends meet in the real thing. Between 2011 and 2021, the population of Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders in Clark County, Nevada, which includes Las Vegas, grew by about 40% for a total of nearly 22,000 people. That was the greatest number of newcomers in that demographic in any county outside of Hawaii, according to population estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau. In that same period, the total population of Clark County grew by about 17%. For many, the draw is real estate. Houses in the Las Vegas area have a median listing price of about $460,000, compared with about $800,000 in Honolulu, according to the Federal Reserve economic data. Americans migrating for cheaper housing is not unusual, as seen most dramatically in a decades-long shift from the Northeast to the Sun Belt. But this migration from the impossibly lush natural landscape of the islands to the brash desert of Las Vegas is a particularly vivid glimpse of how the search for housing remakes the country in sometimes surprising ways. The connection between Hawaii and Las Vegas stretches back decades, in large part due to the California Hotel and Casino in downtown Las Vegas. The Cal, which opened in 1975, has long catered to Hawaiians through special travel deals and targeted marketing. At the casino, dealers at the crab's table wear Hawaiian shirts. Guests dine on island specialties, and signs on a hotel's facade proclaim, Aloha spoken here. Today, a flourishing Hawaiian community is scattered throughout what is informally known as the Ninth Island. Parents in Las Vegas eager to raise their children with Hawaiian traditions can enroll them in Hawaiian language classes or get them dance lessons at a local halau hula. This month, laymakers in Las Vegas are racing to fill a deluge of orders for high school and college graduations. In Las Vegas, Hawaiians in search of home cooking can take their pick of local restaurants serving plate, lunch, and fresh poke. Spam masubi, a popular Hawaiian snack of rice and spam wrapped in seaweed, and poi, a taro-based Hawaiian staple, are easy to find. Even Zippy's, a popular Hawaiian restaurant chain, is poised to open a spot. What we're doing is creating our own Hawaii, says C.C. Cullen, 38, a native Hawaiian, Ms. Cullen attended the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in the early 2000s and later returned to Oahu. But life with a growing family was difficult. She and her husband, Naoka Hoikaikan Cullen, 37, worked multiple jobs and rented a modest 800-square-foot house, but their paychecks quickly disappeared. You get to the point where you're like, is this it? Is this life, she said. In 2018, Ms. Cullen and her family moved back to Las Vegas. A few months into the pandemic, she and her husband bought a roughly 3,000-square-foot house on a quiet cul-de-sac. They are among the first in their family to be homeowners. And in Las Vegas, they live comfortably raising four children. Ms. Cullen, who teaches the Hawaiian language at local libraries, has made it a priority to keep her children connected to the island's culture. We got priced out of paradise, she said, but all these traditions, all our language, is part of our identity. In 2022, Hawaii had the highest cost of living out of all 50 states and a District of Columbia, according to data from the Council for Community and Economic Research. The state imports the vast majority of its food, making everyday groceries especially expensive. And strict regulations on building have contributed to housing shortages and prices out of reach for many. Representative Nadine K. Nakamura, the majority leader of the Hawaii State House, said that the state government recognizes the economic pressure on local residents and has been focused on expanding tax relief and building more affordable housing. And while many Hawaiians leave for the mainland in search of better jobs and housing, the island's natural splendor and ohana, or family bonds, often pull them back, said Ms. Nakamura, a Democrat who represents part of Kauai. 
People are just drawn to the natural beauty of Hawaii, the camaraderie, the melting pot of ethnic groups, and generally people who get along and support each other, she said. Far from the islands, Hawaiian transplants have found creative ways to keep their culture alive in the desert. After moving from Oahu to Las Vegas in 2014, Tiffany Zudermeister, 46, accepted that she would never be able to grow her own tea leaves, which are used for lays and hula skirts. At home, you can just walk into your backyard and pick all of that, she said. Here, it's the desert and it just doesn't last. Still, Ms. Zudermeister has managed to create a successful side business making lays for graduations and other events. Unlike other local lay makers who resort to using plastic flowers, she seeks out fresh ones and orders tea leaves and orchids from Los Angeles or Hawaii. Being away from home, I miss the ocean, the mountains, the greenery, she said one afternoon, definitely making a lay crown with the daisies, carnations, and baby's breath. But I don't miss the cost. Neither do the Sousas. More than two decades ago, starry-eyed on a trip to Las Vegas, Miss Sousa took her gambling winnings from the Cal and, on a whim, bought a $50,000 house in a local subdivision. By 2005, she and her husband had retired to Las Vegas. Their daughter had already moved to the area, and a son, Vincent Icomino Sousa, soon followed. Mr. Sousa, 56, found that his former career running a company that welcomed cruise ships to Hawaii translated easily to the entertainment world of the Strip. And in the years since, he has become a leader of the local Hawaiian community, teaching hula and performing traditional home blessings for new arrivals. We shouldn't have had to move away from our island home because of the cost of living, he said. But when the islands are basically now a commodity, there's only so much land to go around. On a recent afternoon, Frankie Saveja, 52, and his outrigger teammates struck out across Lake Mead, east of Las Vegas, driving their paddles into the water. Members of the Ninth Island Outrigger Canoe Club practice a traditional Hawaiian sport in the most unlikely of places, a reservoir in the middle of a desert, which has a stark white bathtub ring showing how much water the lake has lost over the years. Mr. Saveja grew up racing outriggers on a majestic blue surf of Hawaii. He moved to Las Vegas in the 1990s in search of carpentry work and a less expensive life. Lake Mead is not the dream world back home, but for Mr. Saveja, it is enough. This is my ocean, he said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. At Harlem Funeral for Jordan Neely, An Outpouring of Grief, by Maria Kramer and Harubi Miko. Jordan Neely spent the last few weeks of his life riding the subways of New York, hungry, desperate, and alone. But at his funeral on Friday at Mount Nebo Baptist Church in Harlem, hundreds gathered to mourn him, including friends, family members, prominent Democratic politicians, and Reverend Al Sharpton, who delivered his eulogy in a public outpouring of grief for a man who spent his final days in solitude and anonymity. The May 1st killing of Mr. Neely, 30, who the police said had been acting in a hostile and erratic manner on an F train before another subway rider placed him in a chokehold for several minutes, quickly divided political leaders and led to protests around the city. It has sparked debate between those who believe that the man who killed Mr. Neely, Daniel Penny, responded with violent vigilantism to a person who needed help and those who believe he was trying to stop a threat. And it has raised questions about safety on the subway and the care provided to homeless and mentally ill people living in the city. In an impassioned eulogy, Mr. Sharpton demanded accountability for Mr. Neely's killing and said that in the weeks since, there had been a distortion of values referring to the description of Mr. Penny by his lawyers and others as a hero who was protecting frightened passengers. Jordan was screaming for help. We keep criminalizing people with mental illness, Mr. Sharpton said during a speech that brought the crowd to its feet. They don't need abuse. They need help. Mr. Penny, 24, has been charged with second-degree manslaughter, an online fundraiser for his legal defense amassed more than $2.6 million in donations after it was promoted by conservative politicians. The chokehold was captured in a four-minute video, but many questions still remain about what took place before the video began. Witnesses told the police that Mr. Neely had shouted that he was hungry, thirsty, and ready to die. There has been no indication that he physically attacked anyone. 
at least 200 people filled the church, where Mr. Neely's remains lay in a white coffin draped with white and red flowers. Some mourners came dressed as Michael Jackson in honor of Mr. Neely, a street performer who impersonated the singer. Church leaders said the funeral should serve as an occasion to remember how Mr. Neely lived. An a cappella group sang People Get Ready by Curtis Mayfield. The funeral program showed photos of Mr. Neely as a baby, a grinning graduate, and in a red and black leather jacket reminiscent of Michael Jackson's thriller era. But much of the service focused on the outrage Mr. Neely's death has stirred. Yusuf Salam, who was running for city council in Harlem, came with his mother to the funeral where, in a speech, he drew parallels between Mr. Neely's death and his own experience as one of the exonerated five, a group of teenagers wrongly convicted of the 1989 rape of a woman in Central Park. Here we are in the year 2023, having witnessed the lynching, a lynching, a lynching in the public square, said Mr. Salam, whose conviction was overturned in 2002 a lynching of a black man who was never given a chance by the system that was designed to keep him oppressed. Some political leaders in the city have asked why the police did not arrest Mr. Penny immediately after the killing, a criticism that mourners repeated during the funeral service. Mr. Sharpton argued that had Mr. Neely been a white Elvis Presley impersonator and had it been a black man who choked him, the police would not have let that black man leave the precinct that night. On Friday, Cleo Calvo-Patero, a spokeswoman for the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the independent agency tasked with investigating police misconduct, said it had received a complaint about the police decision not to charge right away. The agency was investigating the complaint as an abuse of authority, Ms. Calvo-Patero said. In a statement, the police said that cases were examined to ensure probable cause exists to make an arrest. In this case, the NYPD collected and examined evidence and interviewed multiple witnesses at the scene and immediately began searching for additional witnesses to gain a complete picture of the facts, the police said. The investigation was done alongside the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. On Friday, there were several police officers outside of the church where a small group of protesters held signs calling for accountability. The scene remained fairly calm as mourners inside listened intently to Mr. Sharpton's speech. Mr. Neely was an example of how the city systems are choking the homeless and choking the mentally ill, he said. When they choked Jordan, they put their arms around all of us, he said. All of us have the right to live. Throughout his remarks, Mr. Sharpton was unflinching in his criticism of Mr. Penny and the politicians like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a Republican, who have described Mr. Penny as a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan helps those in trouble, he said. They don't choke them. Several Democratic politicians attended the funeral, including Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jermaine Williams, the New York City public advocate, and Lieutenant Governor Antonio Delgado. Not present was Mayor Eric Adams, who has been criticized by Mr. Neely's family and by left-leaning politicians for his muted initial response to the killing. Jordan Neely's life mattered, and his death was a tragedy, Fabian Levy, a spokesman for Mr. Adams, said. Mayor Adams is thinking about Jordan and his family today and wanted to ensure that Jordan was the sole focus at today's service. Friends have recalled Mr. Neely as a talented dancer who adored performing in front of subway riders and mystified tourists. Moses Harper, a street performer who often danced with Mr. Neely, said since his death, she received calls from people in Australia and Europe who remembered his performances. Jordan loved interacting with people all over the world who were visiting New York City, she said, standing outside the church. It wasn't just that he was dancing. He was connecting with people from all different walks of life. But in recent years, his family said, he was struggling with mental illness and addiction, problems that were set off by the murder of his mother, Christy Neely, who was killed by her boyfriend when Mr. Neely was 14. Mr. Sharpton noted that Miss Neely's funeral had taken place at the same church, with her son seated in the front row looking at her coffin. Miss Harper said Mr. Neely had often spoken about how his mother's death had devastated him. He never got the full healing that he should have had, she said. What happened to his mother, it left a scar on him, Miss Harper said at the funeral. Mr. Neely was later arrested dozens of times, mostly for transgressions like turnstile jumping or trespassing. But at least four arrests were on charges of punching people, including in the subway system. 
He was placed on what outreach workers refer to as a top 50 list, a roster maintained by the City of Homeless People, whom officials consider most urgently in need of assistance and treatment. After the funeral, mourners spilled out into the street where someone played an instrumental version of Billie Jean as a man breakdanced in the middle of 114th Street. A police escort led Mr. Neely's family and a hearse carrying Mr. Neely's coffin part of the way to the cemetery in Valhalla, New York, for a private burial. Most of the supporters who remained near the church left soon after. Most of the supporters who remained near the church left soon after. A Canadian Armageddon Sets Parts of Western Canada on Fire by Dan Balewski As acrid smoke filled the air, turning the sky around her sleepy hometown, Fox Creek, Alberta, a garish blood orange, Nicole Clark said she felt a sense of terror. With no time to collect family photographs, she grabbed her two young children, hopped into her pickup truck, and sped away, praying she wouldn't drive into the blaze's menacing path. This feels like a Canadian Armageddon, like a bad horror film, said Miss Clark, a 37-year-old hairstylist standing outside her pickup truck. In a country revered for placid landscapes and predictability, weeks of out-of-control wildfires raging across western Canada have ushered in a potent sense of fear, threatening a region that is the epicenter of the country's oil and gas sector. Climate research suggests that heat and drought associated with global warming are major reasons for the increase in bigger and stronger fires. Amid frequent fire updates dominating national television news broadcasts, the blaze have also helped unite a vast and sometimes polarized nation with volunteers, firefighters, and army reservists from other provinces rushing in to lend a hand. Roughly 29,000 people in Alberta have been forced from their homes by the recent bout of wildfires, though that number has been cut in half in recent days as fires subsided. Miss Clark said her family had been staying in cheap motels since they were ordered about a week ago to evacuate their home. But she and her boyfriend were unemployed and the money was quickly running out. I don't know if I'll have a home to return to, she added on Thursday, sobbing. The fires have produced such thick smoke that during recess, children in some towns have remained in their classrooms rather than risk smoke inhalation outside. Dozens of residents left in such a frantic panic that they left pets behind. On Highway 43, a long stretch of Alberta Highway peppered by small evacuated towns, the thick layer of smoke blanketed the road on Thursday conjured the feeling of a dystopia. With helicopters hovering overhead dropping water, police cars with flashing lights blocked parts of the highway as fires approached the road. Residents trying to return to homes they hoped were still intact commiserated as they were forced to turn back. Fires have broken throughout western Canada, including British Columbia, but hardest hit has been neighboring Alberta, a proud oil and gas producing province, sometimes referred to as the Texas of the North, which has declared a state of emergency. More than 94 active wildfires were burning as of Friday afternoon. British Columbia was the site in 2021 of one of Canada's worst wildfires in recent decades, when fires decimated the tiny community of Lytton. After temperatures there reached a record 49.6 degrees Celsius, or 121.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Not since the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic buffeted the region has the area been so overcome by apprehension, accompanied by the all-too-familiar need to wear masks outside. Only this time, residents say, a silent killer has been replaced by something more visceral and visible. So far, no deaths have been reported, but in Alberta, Frankie Paiu, a firefighter and 33-year-old father of three from the East Prairie Matisse Settlement in North Alberta, was in a coma with severe injuries after being hit on the head by a burning tree. His home was also destroyed by a fire. The bulk of the fires are in the far north of the province, home to many indigenous communities dealing with The bulk of the fires are in the far north of the province, home to many indigenous communities dealing a heavy blow to people who depend on the land and natural resources. At a sprawling evacuation center in Edmonton, Ken Zenner, 61, a father of eight, two of whom are members of the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation, said he and his family had been evacuated from the town of Valley View. He worried how they would get by. Families that have been displaced for a cumulative seven days are eligible for government-provided financial support, according to provincial regulations. But Mr. Zenner said he didn't qualify because he had only been evacuated for six days. 
Indigenous communities have been underfunded for years, and now we are seeing the consequences, he said. The rest of the country is mobilizing to help. Some 2,500 firefighters are battling the fires, among them 1,000 from other provinces. Joining them are wilderness firefighters from the United States. The fires have even affected Alberta's largest city, Calgary, where the residents this week said they sat down for breakfast only to see and smell pungent smoke entering from cracks under their doors. Environment and Climate Change Canada said their air quality index for the city on Wednesday afternoon was at 10-plus, or very high risk. Canadian health authorities have warned the smoke could cause symptoms ranging from sore and watery eyes to coughing, dizziness, chest pains, and heart palpitations. In Alberta, the blazes have brought back bad memories of 2016 when a raging wildfire destroyed 2,400 buildings in Fort McCurry, Alberta, the heart of Canada's oil sands region with the third largest reserves of oil in the world. Alberta is Canada's main energy-providing province and the United States' largest source of imported oil. The fires have compelled some companies to curb production. As flames bore down on wells and pipelines, major drillers like Chevron and Paramount Resources together shut down the equivalent of at least 240,000 barrels of oil a day, according to the energy consulting firm Rystad Energy. For now, the disruptions affect only a small proportion of the country's total oil and gas output. Still, they underscore how the production of oil and gas, the main driver of climate change, is also vulnerable to the increasingly dire consequences of a warming planet. Some say the fire may help galvanize Canadians about the perils of climate change. The smoke from forest fires has in-your-face impact, affecting millions of Canadians that make it harder to ignore, a columnist for CBC, the national broadcaster, observed this week. The human toll of the fires will reverberate for weeks to come. Christine Petty, a business manager for a logging cooperative in Edson, a rural town about two hours west of Edmonton, said residents were still shell-shocked after being evacuated. She and her husband left in such a rush that he forgot his insulin medicine. They were fortunate that their home remained standing. Still, Miss Petty said, the experience definitely shook me to my core. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 20th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Ambria. Thank you for listening.